Well, good morning, church family. If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. And I promise I was not about to sing a solo a while ago. I just got mixed up when I was supposed to get up here. So that's a blessing for you, I can promise you this morning. John 4, verses 1 through 42. And as you're turning, let me begin by saying this. You know, there are certain things in life that you just don't do. In fact, I would argue there are certain things in life that you really probably just shouldn't do. For example, when you're standing in line at the airport, that's probably not the time to yell out the word bomb, right? Not a good idea. Or if you're going towards Williams Bryce, probably not a good idea to wear a Clemson shirt. If you're going to Death Valley, probably not a good idea to wear a Carolina shirt, at least not if you want to keep your limbs intact. Certain things in life that you just don't do. You know, for many years, as Steve said, we served as your missionaries with the IMB in Central Europe. When the Europeans greet each other, here's what they do. They do not greet each other with a handshake or with a high five or with a fist bump. What they do is they greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. And the whole kissing process is actually very important. In fact, there's a very strict protocol that you must follow when you do this whole kissing thing. What you want to do is you want to kiss right cheek and then left cheek. Right cheek and then left cheek. The protocol is very, very important because if you go left when they're going right, you're both going to get a big surprise. And it's one neither one of you probably really did not want. I remember we had been in Hungary for about a year and I had learned just enough Hungarian language to be dangerous. And I found myself at that time sitting across the table from the president of the Hungarian Baptist Union. And not just the president, but the vice president and the vice vice president. And all the king's men were there. And then there's me at the ripe age of 29 years old representing our Southern Baptist Convention in what were very serious talks with very serious men. Men, by the way, who really had survived many years of communism. Men who had survived all of that persecution. Men who were serious about their faith. Men without just a large sense of humor. You get the picture. And we're discussing very serious issues. How they as Hungarian Baptists might be able to help us as Southern Baptists keep our visas to stay in the country. And so very serious talk. So after about an hour of conversation, conversation finally rolls around to me. And this is my big moment. So I bellied up the table and I cleared my throat. And in my very best Hungarian, I said, men, I want to thank you all very much for what you were doing, but I do not want in any way for you all to become burdened from us. And the minute I said that, their eyes got big. They looked at each other. They looked back at me. And I knew I had done something wrong. I just didn't know what it was. And then it dawned on me. You see, the word for burden in Hungarian is the word teher. But I got mixed up, and I used the word terhesh. So what actually came out was this. Men, I want to thank you all very much for what you were doing, but I did not want in any way for you all to become pregnant from us. <laughs> and after a couple of very awkward moments of silence, the president clears his throat and in perfect English says, Brother Mark, trust me, we do not want this either. And then they all just died laughing. <laughs> Clearly the joke was upon me. There are certain things in life you just don't do. Well, here's the reality. Every culture, every society has sets of rules or protocols, if you will, to which we either consciously or unconsciously adhere. And here's the truth. The reality is that those protocols are actually very helpful. 
because they help us to give a sense of social harmony and cohesion to guide our social interactions together. So here's my question for you this morning, church family. Is it ever okay for you and I to break social protocol? Is it ever okay or sometimes even necessary for us to break social protocol? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at the story of a man who believed the unequivocal answer to that question was yes. And surprisingly, our example for breaking social protocol is found in none other than Jesus himself. Now, before we actually get into the text, let me just set the stage here for what's happening. By the way, Steve, I didn't know we are going to have a mosh pit this morning when I was thinking about preaching at First Baptist Church. This is really exciting. Let me set the stage for what's happening this morning. You see, in John chapter 3, Jesus' public ministry is really taken off. It's a lot of fun. Things are beginning to happen. He's beginning to gain in popularity, gain in notoriety. People know his name, which is really, really good. His public ministries began. It's good for him. It's good for the kingdom. It's good for the disciples. But you know who it wasn't good for? It wasn't good for the Pharisees. Because as Jesus began to grow in popularity, he began to grow in influence. And as he began to grow in influence, he began to compete directly with their influence. And they didn't like that. So what you begin to see is a plan come together slowly to get rid of this guy named Jesus. Now there's going to come a time when Jesus is going to confront the Pharisees on their behavior, but the time for that has not yet come. So Jesus makes a key decision. And what Jesus decides to do is to basically take the disciples and leave Judea, which is here, and travel up to Galilee, which is here. So if you want to travel from Judea to Galilee back in these days, there were basically three ways you could do it. You could go from your perspective this direction. You could travel along the seacoast up by the Mediterranean Sea and come around the backside and end up in Galilee. That was one legit way to go. If you don't like the water, you could go the other direction. Now you had to cross the Jordan River, but you could cross the Jordan River, come up through the mountainous region of Perea, and then land in Galilee, which was here as well. But the fastest way to get from Judea, which is here, to Galilee, which is here, was to walk a straight path. But here's the problem with that. You had to go through a region named Samaria. And if you were a Jew, this is a problem because Samaritans lived there. And Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews. And the reason, it goes way back in history when the Assyrians conquered the territory. The Assyrians brought some of their people in. They shipped some of the Jews out. And what happened was some of the Jews remaining in the area began to intermarry with some of the Assyrians, creating what they believed, the Jewish people believed, was a half-breed of people, the Samaritan people. Jews didn't like that. Felt like they had sold out the race. On top of that, the Samaritan people did not believe that Jerusalem was the holy place of worship. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the place of worship. And then to add insult to injury, the Samaritans did not even accept the entire council of the Old Testament as authoritative. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as acceptable, as authoritative. So when you mix all of this together, ultimately what you get is this effect. Jews just didn't like Samaritans. In fact, Jews would travel way out of their way to avoid any contact whatsoever with Samaritans. In fact, back in those days, you were not even allowed to drink from the same cup as a Samaritan. That's how deep the divide was. Say, Mark, why do you go into all that background? Here's the reason why. Because unless you understand the deep racial divide and cultural hatred between these two groups, 
there is no way to understand the true magnitude of what Jesus is about to do. So with that being said, look with me in John chapter 4. And beginning in verse 1, John writes this. He says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. And by the way, when John writes that Jesus had to go through Samaria, Jesus was not compelled by circumstances to go through Samaria or by politics, even by fear. What Jesus is going to tell us later in this chapter is that his will is to do, his food is to do the will of the Father who sent him. So Jesus knows that the Father has an appointment for him in Samaria. So he had to go through Samaria, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, think about that. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that sometimes the greatest opportunities for ministry come at a time when we have the absolute least amount of energy? Jesus being 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Same was true for him. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now here's what we're about to see. We're about to see Jesus go and break a series of very important protocols that have been established in his day. The first protocol that Jesus is going to break is what I'm going to label this morning as the silence protocol. In other words, there are certain people in life that you just don't talk to. You just have nothing to do with them whatsoever. And Jesus is about to break that protocol. Look with me in verse 7. Well, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. By the way, church family, the fact that this woman came to the well at the sixth hour is very significant. You see, back in those days, every Jewish town, every Samaritan town was built close to a source of water, similar to today. And if you wanted to survive as a family, you had to have water. So at least once a day, every family would, every, would send a member of their family to the well Usually with big water jars, either carrying them, sometimes on their heads, sometimes on their backs, sometimes carrying like this, sometimes on animals. They would go to the well and they would get their water. That's how families survived. And usually the representative of the family that went was the woman. And back in those days, remember, they didn't have email. They didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat. If they wanted to have social interaction, they had to go figure, do this face-to-face, a novel concept. So what they would do is once a day when they would go to the well, they would make this a social time. And most of the time when women went to the well, they would go to the well usually at 9 o'clock in the morning, usually mid-morning, the third hour of the day, in the cool of the morning. Or if they didn't catch that shift, they would wait and go later in the afternoon, sometimes at the ninth hour. That way they could catch up. It wasn't quite so hot. Here's the deal. Nobody went to the well at the sixth hour. Nobody. In fact, your translation might even translate this as being dead noon. Nobody went to the well at that time. So the fact that this woman is going to the well at the sixth hour tells us a few things about this woman. It tells us, first of all, she's probably not a woman that's received well by other women. She's probably not someone that had just a stellar 
reputation. She's not someone that was really looking for social interaction. In fact, she's probably coming to the well specifically at this time, so she doesn't have to have anything to do with anyone. She's coming to the well just to get it done. Let me get my water jar, get to the well, get the water, get home, and get it done. And today she shows up, like lots of other days, and she looks down, and there's something interesting that's there. There's this Jewish guy just sitting at the well. Now remember back in those days, it's important for us to know that men did not speak with women unless you were directly related to them. Jews did not speak with Samaritans. Jewish men who were teachers of the law did not speak with Samaritan women who had bad reputations. Jewish men who were teachers of the law and had good reputations and were alone with no accountability whatsoever certainly did not speak with Jew Samaritan women who had bad reputations and were alone and there was no accountability. Hear me this morning when I say this, friends. There was every social reason in the world for Jesus not to speak to this woman. Yet with one question, he shatters a gender barrier. He shatters an ethnic barrier. He shatters an economic barrier. He shatters a geographic barrier. He even shatters a religious barrier simply by asking her the question, will you give me a drink? You know, one thing we learned on the mission field many years ago is that if you want to make a friend with someone, one of the best ways to do that was really to ask them to help you do something. Somehow by presenting yourself as vulnerable in the eyes of a culture, you somehow appeal to their sense of honor and hospitality. And Jesus, understanding that same social axiom of the day, does exactly that and asks her for a drink. So most likely, here's this woman's conclusion at this point. Here's a woman that's thinking of this about Jesus. You know what? Here sits before me a Jewish guy who's really thirsty, who's really desperate, and who's really alone. Jesus broke the silence protocol. Now we're going to see Jesus break the second of protocols, what I'm going to label specifically as the shallow protocol. In fact, it kind of goes like this, that if you do find yourself speaking with someone that you shouldn't be speaking with, then whatever you do, keep the conversation tame. Keep the conversation safe. Don't get too wild. And whatever you do, don't get personal. But Jesus blows that out of the water. In fact, what we're about to see here are a series of three key exchanges in the text. And with each one of these series, Jesus actually gets more personal than the one before. So look what happens here. The plot begins to thicken here in verse 7. Again, she says, he says, will you give me a drink? She says this to him, sir, you are a Jew, a little ethnicity coming out. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. What do you mean? How can you ask me for a drink? And then Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now think about that for a second. Why did this woman come to the well? She's not coming to meet some Jewish dude. She's coming to get water. Water's on her mind. Not on her brain, but water's on her mind. She's thinking that direction. She's thinking about water. So Jesus, understanding that, basically builds a bridge to a conversation with her about that very topic of water. So he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. 
Well, again, with water on her mind, she looks at him. She's probably looking at the well. She's looking at him. And she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And this well, and by the way, the well is probably about 200 feet deep. This well is deep. She says, where can you even get this, quote, unquote, living water? And then she begins to make fun of him. She says, are you somehow greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds. In other words, who in the world do you think you are? And what's interesting about this question is this. That's the exact question that Jesus is wanting her to ask. So the plot thickens. It continues. Jesus, again, looking at the well, goes a little bit deeper into the water thing. It says here in verse 12, 13, excuse me, it says, everyone who drinks this water, again, they're looking at the well, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. Indeed, it will become in him a spring that's welling up to eternal life. Again, the water theme continues. And she's thinking about this now. Now we see a switch in the conversation because she's now intrigued. She's leaning in a little bit. So she says to him, wait a minute, sir, give me this living water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to the well to draw water. And by the way, this is the moment in the story where we are confident that Jesus is going to seal the deal, right? In the American version of this story, here's what happens. She moves from, where can you get this living water to give me this living water? And Jesus says, I am the living water. And she comes to faith and the cameras zoom out and the music plays and the credits roll and the birds start chirping and everybody's a happy camper, right? Huge cultural win in the American version. Only problem is that's not what happens in the actual version. In fact, At just the moment when she seems the most open to spiritual change, instead of saying come, Jesus says this. He says go. He says go and call your husband and come back. You ever notice, by the way, in Scripture that every single time when Jesus says go in the New Testament, people actually do it, that good things always follow? True throughout the entire New Testament. True also for this woman. He says, go and call your husband and come back. And now we see the shortest response of this whole dialogue from the woman. And she simply says this, a little bit ashamed, I have no husband. And then Jesus says this, he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that you currently have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Why would Jesus do this? Why would the biblical Jesus take this personal attack at this time? I mean, here she is. She's beginning to open up, right? Our evangelism methods don't teach this. She's beginning to open up. She's excited about it. Just the moment she's ready, Jesus instead seems to pose this very personal command to her and really get personal and make it very awkward and call her out. Why would he do that? Why would the biblical Jesus take this approach? Friends, here's why. Remember this about Jesus. Out of his love for her, Jesus is not wanting this woman to wrestle with the question, where can I get this living water? He's wanting her to wrestle with the question, who is this man in front of me? Who is this Jesus? C.S. Lewis, noted author, poet, and even philosopher, 
from the UK in his book, Mere Christianity, poses a very interesting thought for us. In fact, he says that the most significant question that everyone must answer in this life is this question, who is Jesus? And he posits there are basically just three valid responses, if you think about it. The first response is he could have been a lunatic. He was deranged. He he didn't know who he was. He thought he was God, but he wasn't. That's one option. If he wasn't a lunatic, then he must have been possibly a liar. I mean, that he knew he wasn't God, but he was manipulating and tricking people into thinking that he was. Those are valid options. But then Lewis says this, that if neither one of those options really makes sense, historically or biblically, in all that we know about Jesus, then the only option that you really have left is this. He must have been who he said he was. He must have been Lord of all. This is why Jesus breaks the silence protocol with her. It's why he breaks the shallow protocol with her. And now we're going to see Jesus break the last of the three protocols, what I'm going to label this morning as the spiritual protocol. In other words, if you do find yourself speaking with someone that you shouldn't be speaking with, and you do somehow find yourself in a deeply personal conversation, then whatever you do, do not, I repeat, do not get into a religious debate. Just don't do it. But then again, Jesus, not content to follow our social and cultural norms, does exactly that. In fact, the response from this woman at this point is very interesting. Some have suggested, perhaps accurately so, that she, her response to him is she's trying to change the subject. She's embarrassed by what he said. He calls her out. She doesn't like that. She's embarrassed. So she's wanting to deflect the conversation. That very well could be true. But friends, I want to suggest one more possibility this morning. Here's what I believe. I believe this woman was really smart and very clever. And I think this woman recognizes that for her, this is a unique and a rare opportunity. When is a woman of her reputation ever going to have a chance to hang out and talk one-on-one with a Jewish spiritual authority when there's no crowd, no congregation, and no consequences? When is that ever going to happen? So with that understanding, she does what we might do. She decides to dig into the ongoing hot topic religious debate of the day between these groups, which is always about the location of worship. So look at her response. She says this, Verse 9, she says, Sir, I can see you're not just some guy. Sir, I can see that you were a prophet. She says, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's probably looking at Mount Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews, again, ethnicity coming out, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus doesn't take the bait because here's what Jesus says to her in response. He says this, he says, Believe me, woman, verse 21, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know, but we Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. So he does speak to the debate, but then he says this. He says, yet. And this is one of the biggest yets in all of Scripture. He says, yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks, for God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, in one response now, is setting up for her a brand new worship 
paradigm. A paradigm that's never been seen by the Jewish people, never been experienced by the Samaritan people. A brand new paradigm that no one understands, including her. We would not have understood it either. So her response makes sense. And by the way, this worship paradigm was amazing. It's a paradigm that takes the focus off of outer purity and puts it on inner purity. A focus which takes the idea of the location being important to the person being important. A focus of worship which puts the focus not on a ritual, but on a relationship, a brand new paradigm. Something never seen nor experienced by any of these people before. So her response, clearly this blows her mind. We see her response. She says that she says, you know, I don't know about all that, but I do know this. And to her credit, she did. She says, I know this, that one day Messiah called the Christ is coming. And check this out. She says this, and when he comes, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus in grand, dramatic fashion, in a way that only Jesus can do, looks at her and drops the bomb and says, Lady, I who speak to you am he. Boom! And suddenly, in this moment of crystal clarity, she gets it, and she sees it. And she recognizes, it's not the water that I've been looking for, it's him that I've been looking for. And in one conversation, because Jesus loved this woman, in one conversation, because Jesus took a risk to break social protocol, we see her move from apathy to curiosity to openness to belief. She moves from apathy towards Jesus to curiosity about Jesus to openness to Jesus to belief in Jesus in one conversation. You say, Mark, how do you know that she moved to belief in Jesus? Very simple. Because right on cue as we close, look what happens. The disciples come stumbling back on the scene. No one said anything about him talking to this woman. The woman says to him in verse 28, says, leaving her water jar, the woman returns to the town and she says to the people, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And now... Just as Jesus abandoned social protocol for her, she abandons her water jar for him. And now the very people who in the beginning of the story she's running away from now become the very people in the end of the story that she's running towards. And now just as Jesus engages her in her apathy with a question is the same way she engages them in their apathy with a question. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Christ? And she does something that's one of the hardest things in life for a Jesus follower to do. She lays her credibility completely on the line with those who knew her best. And friends, aren't we glad that she did? Because the village comes out and they meet him. And you know what? They are fascinated by him. And now we see not just a woman, we see an entire village move from apathy to curiosity to openness to belief. So let me ask you a rude question this morning. It's a personal question. It's a question that I don't know you well enough to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does your life move others from apathy to curiosity? 
when people really get to know you, do they become more curious about Jesus or, quite frankly, less? And as we enter into a time of the year here at First Baptist Church, our church family, one of the most evangelistic seasons of the year, my question for you is this, with whom is God calling you to break social protocol? With whom is God calling you to risk an awkward conversation? Perhaps it's a neighbor. Perhaps it's a coworker. Perhaps it's a friend. Or for some of you, it might even be a family member. Friends, hear me this morning. Don't dissect my words, but read my heart when I say this. Right now on planet Earth, there are two billion people, with a B, billion people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. I don't mean they haven't heard the gospel of Jesus. They haven't heard the name of Jesus. And for many people on the planet today, they're not rejecting Jesus because they're not interested in Him. They're rejecting Jesus because they're not hearing about Him. Jesus broke protocol. The woman heard. The woman broke protocol. The village heard. And none of their lives were ever ever the same we know because as we close with verse 42 they came back and they said to the woman we no longer believe just because of what you said now we've heard for ourselves and we know and we know that this man really is the savior of the world bow with me in just a moment we're going to offer a time of invitation And this will be a time when we invite you to personally respond to everything that God may have spoken to you today. Perhaps you're here this morning and the Lord has placed a name on your heart, a vision on your mind, and you need someone to come alongside and pray with you and support you to have the guts and the intestinal fortitude to trust God with the consequences of your obedience to break social protocol. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been looking for a church family. I would invite you to consider our family, the first family, as a great place to join. My family joined and we have loved every minute of it. Consider us as your church home. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you would be totally honest. And you would say this, that there's never really been a time in your life when you have truly surrendered to him when you've asked Jesus, this same Jesus, to come into your life, to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from the inside out and create you into a brand new being. Friends, today can be the day of your salvation. Our pastors will be here. I'll be here. And we would love nothing more than to pray with you as you obey what he's called you to do. So Father, take this time and use this time for your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, church family. As the music plays, you respond.
Mark, thank you.